Now, friends, as we come to the book of Daniel, I must confess that to me, this is one of the most thrilling books in the Bible. And it is, of course, a book on prophecy. And I would like to just say a word in this connection because of the fact that prophecy books large in the Word of God. But we need to be very careful. One-fourth of the books of the Bible are prophetic in nature. The subject and statement of the books are eschatological, that is, prophetic. And one-fifth of the content of Scripture was predictive when written. Now, a large segment of that has been fulfilled. We're going to find a great deal of fulfilled prophecy in the book of Daniel. And so prophecy can be divided into fulfilled prophecy and unfulfilled prophecy. Now, there are certain great subjects of prophecy, and they all run like planes flying into an airport from all sections of the world. And you can go to the book of Revelation and see these great subjects brought to a final fruition. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the main subject of prophecy. The nation Israel, the Gentile nations, evil, Satan, and the man of sin, and the great tribulation. And then how this age will end. And then the church. And the church, of course, as we've said before, is not in the Old Testament. Therefore, there'll be no reference to it in the book of Daniel. And then the kingdom, the millennium, and then the future after the 1,000 years. These are the great subjects of prophecy. Now, no full-orb view of the Bible and no well-rounded student of Scripture, no one, I think, can be a full-grown believer without a knowledge of eschatology or prophecy. And the neglect of prophecy has produced certain harmful results, which I think are quite evident today. You find the different cults. Many of them have gone off in prophecy. And I think because largely the great denominations in the past neglected it. The great Dr. Charles Hodge, the great theologian of Princeton, he made this statement, and I'm quoting him now verbatim, quote, "...the subject cannot be adequately discussed." He's talking about prophecy now. "...cannot be adequately discussed without taking a survey of all the prophetic teachings of the Scripture, both of the Old Testament and of the New. This task cannot be satisfactorily accomplished by anyone who has not made a study of the prophecies a specialty. The author, that is Dr. Hodge, knowing that he has not such qualifications for the work, purposes to confine himself in a great measure to a historical survey of the different schemes of interpreting the Scriptures prophetically. Now, friends, that was certainly a startling and a sad admission on the part of Dr. Hodge. And as a result, in our great denominations today, you find man actually ill-equipped to speak on this subject. And, of course, they reject it 
with a wave of the hand, and they dismiss it as being unimportant. And those that have gone into prophecy, and there have been many, so many of them come up with that which is sensational, that which is actually fanaticism. And it ought not to do that. I want to say that as we begin Daniel, because this is the book that today every sensational writer, he has to get in the book of Daniel. And somebody's going to say, that's the reason you got in the book of Daniel. No, really it's not, friends. At least I'd hope not. But it's certainly this book would lend itself to that. Now, the book of Daniel, because it's so important, I think has been the object of special attack by Satan. It was true that Isaiah's been attacked. Isaiah's been called the prince of the prophets. Well, Daniel just happens to be the king of prophets. He is the great world ruler of prophets because of the fact he is the one who is prime minister to two great world rulers. We will see that in this book. Now, therefore, the book of Daniel has been a battlefield between the conservative and liberal scholars. And I don't care to enter into that too much. A great deal has had to do with the dating of Daniel. Porphyry, a heretic in the third century A.D., he declared that the book of Daniel was a forgery, written during the time of Antiochus, Epiphanes, and the Maccabees. That'd be around 170 B.C., almost 400 years after Daniel had lived. Now, the German critics seized upon this hypothesis, and along with Dr. Driver, they developed this type of criticism. Now, these critics, as well as present-day unbelievers, they assume the premise that the supernatural does not exist. Hence... There can be no foretelling, since foreknowledge is supernatural, and you couldn't prophesy. But the very interesting thing is that the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was written prior to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, it contains the book of Daniel. And that's the reason the liberal scholar hasn't done very much about the Dead Sea Scrolls. My, he came at it with a bang at the beginning. But if you've noticed, they don't talk much about them today. Why? Because they confirm the fact that at that time there was only one Isaiah. And those boys, they would like to have a duet of Isaiahs. Some of them want a trio of Isaiahs. But the interesting thing is Dead Sea Scrolls, are very much alive. They're live scrolls, and they rather refute the liberal critic. It's interesting how these things in time are always answered. And if you'll notice, the heretic and the critic, and the one that's gone off in a cult, always move in an area of the Bible where at the present we don't have full knowledge of it. And so if you're going to speculate... Everybody can speculate, you see. And for that reason, you can speculate any way you want to. And they generally speculate the wrong way. But generally, it works out that we find out that the Word of God is accurate. Now, Josephus, Flavius Josephus, he records an incident during the time of Alexander the Great which supports the early authorship. 
When Alexander's invasion reached the Near East, Jadua, the high priest, went out to meet him, showed to him a copy of the book of Daniel, in which he was clearly mentioned. And Alexander was so impressed by this that instead of destroying Jerusalem, he entered the city peaceably and worshiped at the temple. Well, may I say to you that these things, you know, they contradict the critics. And yet there are some people go on blindly today. Now, it's not, therefore, in the purview of these brief notes that we're giving you now to enter into useless argument and fight again about that which has already been settled. I want to say that I accept the findings of conservative scholarship, that the man Daniel was not a deceiver and that his book was not a forgery. We feel that the statement of Pusey is apropos here. I'm quoting again. The rest which has been said is mostly mere insolent assumptions against Scripture, grounded on unbelief. And it was Sir Isaac Newton who declared to reject Daniel is to reject the Christian religion. Now, our Lord Jesus, he called the Pharisees hypocrites, but he called Daniel a prophet. That's interesting. I, very frankly, I go along with the Lord Jesus. I call Daniel the prophet, and I call these critics hypocrites today. That's my idea, of course. Could be wrong. Now, will you notice? I don't think the Lord Jesus, though, reversed his arrangement, and the endorsement of the Lord Jesus Christ is valid and sufficient for every believer, whether he's examined the arguments of the critics or not. It satisfies the sincere saint without his having studied the answers of conservative scholarship. He can recognize that Daniel is spoken of in the New Testament as a prophet. Now, that leads me to say just a word about Daniel before we get into the book of Daniel. I think we know more of Daniel, the man, than we do of any other prophet. He gives us a personal account of his life from the time he was carried captive to Babylon, and that was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, which was about 604 or 606 B.C., until the first year of King Cyrus, which was about 536 B.C. And Daniel's life and ministry bridged the entire 70 years' captivity. At the beginning of the book, he's a boy in his teens. At the end, he's an old man of four score and more years. Now, here is God's estimate of the man Daniel. O Daniel, a man greatly beloved. I wouldn't want to be a critic and call Daniel a forgery and someday have to face Daniel and find out in heaven he has a pretty good reputation, a man greatly beloved. I could only wish that the critic had that kind of a reputation in heaven and on earth also. Now, there are three words that characterize 
Daniel's life. Purpose, prayer, and prophecy. Now, Daniel, first of all, was a man of purpose. We're going to see that. I tell you, when the king made a decree that they had to all eat the same thing, Daniel and his friends decided they would abide by the law of Moses, and they did. He was a man of purpose, and we're going to find out all the way through this book. Here's a man that stood on his two feet and had the intestinal fortitude to speak God's Word. God have pity today on men that pretend to be God's messengers in this world and haven't got the courage to declare the Word of God. They won't speak it. Thank God for the men that are doing it today. And there are many like that. Now, he's a man with a purpose. You see, the study of prophecy won't lead you to fanaticism or sensationalism. It's going to lead you to a life of holiness and fear of God. And you won't live for him. John said in 1 John 3, 3, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he's pure. Now, Daniel was not only a man of purpose. Daniel was a man of prayer. And we have several incidents of that. By the way, prayer got that man in the lion's den. And how about that for answered prayer? Well, may I say to you that Daniel was a man of prayer. We are going to see that as we go through the book. And I rather think that prayer and prophecy are very close. Now, Daniel was a man of prophecy. The book of Daniel, as we're going to see, divides itself quite equally. The first half is history. The last half is prophecy. And we are going to see in this particular section that Daniel has a great deal to say, even in the first section, about prophecy. But a great deal of that, by the way, has already been fulfilled. Now, I want to say that I believe that the book of Daniel was written between 606 B.C. and 536 B.C. in that period. And we'll see why we make that statement from the book. Now, I said a moment ago that you can divide this up, you see, into two equal divisions. The first one I call the historic night with prophetic light. The last section, beginning with chapter 7 through 12, you have prophetic light in the historic night. Now, in the very first section, and I'll just give that today, you have in chapter 1, decline of Judah and the fall of Jerusalem. Daniel taken captive to Babylon and his decision to be true to God. Then in chapter 2, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 3, you have the decree of Nebuchadnezzar to enforce universal idolatry. And then you have in chapter 4, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar about a great tree hewn down. And it speaks of his period of madness, insanity. And then chapter 5, we have the downfall of Babylon foretold. And in chapter 6, the decree of Darius that put Daniel in the lion's den. 
Now, we are going to attempt to follow this outline. Now, I do hope that you have before you our notes and outlines. That's going to be helpful to you, especially in this book, because I'm going to go into a great deal of detail here. Now, I believe that the key to this book is found in the second chapter, Daniel, verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, in chapter 1, we have here the decline of Judah, the fall of Jerusalem, and Daniel taken captive to Babylon, and his decision to be true to God. In the first five verses, you have the decline and fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Then you have verses 6 through 14, the decision of Daniel as one of the captives to be true to God. And then verses 15 to 21, delight of Nebuchadnezzar in the development of Daniel and his three friends. Now let's look at the decline and fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. I'm reading now verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. Now Jehoiakim was placed on the throne of Judah by Pharaoh Necho to succeed his brother Jehoiahaz. Both of these men were sons of Josiah, but they were both evil, although their father, as we have seen before, was a godly man, led in actually the last revival. Now, Jehoiakim's name actually was Eliakim. And during his reign, Nebuchadnezzar first came against Jerusalem. The year was about 606 B.C. He took the city about 604 B.C. The city, however, was not destroyed, and the first group of captives was taken to Babylon. Now, among these were Daniel and his three friends, as well as literally thousands of others. Now, when Jehoiakim died, his son Jehoiachin came to the throne. He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, who in 598 besieged Jerusalem again. Once more, Jerusalem was not destroyed. But the king and his mother and all the vessels of the house of the Lord were taken away to Babylon with an even larger group of captives. Evidently, among this latter group was Ezekiel. Now, when we were studying Ezekiel, I went into this in a great deal of detail. You find all of this back in Second Kings, the 23rd chapter, and the 24th chapter. Now, Zedekiah, the uncle of Jehoiachin, who was subsequently made king, also rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And this time, Nebuchadnezzar came against the city, destroyed the temple, burned Jerusalem, and the sons of Zedekiah were slain in his presence, and then his eyes were put out. He, with the final deportation, went into captivity about 588 or 587 B.C. And by the way, this was accomplished 
in fulfillment of the prophecy that Jeremiah had given in Jeremiah 25, 8, and 13. And you remember this man, Jeremiah, he said that the prophets were false prophets. Jerusalem would be destroyed. Ezekiel said the same thing. And these two men just happened to be right. And in verse 2, and I'm reading now, "...and the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God." Now, we find here that he took part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Now, they were put there... And keep that in mind, because a king that's coming along, probably a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, will bring them out for his banquet. Now, verse 3, "...and the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes." Now, this man, Nebuchadnezzar, He took the cream of the crop of all of the captives that he took of any nation. And we find here that Daniel was included. I think they were given tests. I think they wanted to determine their IQ. And these men were to be trained to be wise men for the king of Babylon to advise him. And you'll find out that he did refer to him. Now, if you would drop down, you would find that in verse 9 here, and will you notice it, it says, Now God had brought Daniel into favor and compassion with the prince of the eunuchs. I wonder if that's telling you anything yet. Well, let me give you Isaiah 39, 7. And of the sons that shall issue from thee, God is speaking to the king at that time, at the time of the captivity, and of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, does that tell you anything? Daniel was taken away when he was about 17 years of age. That is, I think, agreed upon by most conservative scholars, and he was made a eunuch. So you can understand why Daniel did not marry, did not have children. A great many raised that question about Daniel. What kind of an oddball is he? Well, he actually was no oddball. This was something that the king did. And it did not destroy the development mentally of these individuals. Actually, It made them more docile to the king, and also it enabled them to give all their time to the studies that were given to them. You know anything about colleges, and I'm sure that that was true in your day. It was in mine. I spent half of my time taking what was known as a campus course, that is, dating. And I've wasted a lot of good time. Somebody said to me, my, you must have really studied when you were in college. Well, I did. I did a lot of studying, but I could have done lots more. You see, the king, he wants these boys to spend their time studying. 
And he had a way of doing it. They're made eunuchs here. And Daniel is in that group. Now, verse 4, "...youths in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and gifted in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans." Now, I want to submit to you that the Bible was not written by a bunch of ninnies. It wasn't written by men who were ignorant. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt. And my friend, they were very far along. They knew the distance to the sun. They knew the earth was round. It was a few of the Greeks that came along later and flattened out the earth. And they were scientists of that day, you see. Science is what taught the earth was flat. Bible never did teach the earth was flat. And in fact, it said it was a circle. And the very interesting thing is, you come to this man, Daniel, here. Daniel was a young man, and they must have given all these fellows an IQ test. And Daniel rated pretty high. He was up at the top of the list. He was outstanding, you see. And by the way, Paul was up in that bracket also. I get wearied of some of these so-called eggheads today acting as if the Bible is a book written by a group of ignoramuses. If you feel that way about it, I say it to you very candidly, you are an ignoramus. Because any study of the Word of God will reveal this man Daniel is nobody's fool. He's a brilliant young man. Now he's going to be taught as few men have been taught. He's going to be exposed to the learning of that day. And don't despise the learning of that day. Many men were well advanced in knowledge and actually in science and in many areas today. And I think Daniel could be put into that class. Now, will you notice something else that took place? And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's food and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end of them they might stand before the king. Now, I've read you here the change that the New Schofield Bible has made here in our authorized version. And they've changed this word that was translated meat to food. And that's all right. And actually, we find that this was the diet of the pagan and the heathen over that. And it would include, of course, unclean animals. And you must remember, Daniel was a Jew. He was under the Mosaic law. And they were told not to eat certain meats and certain fowl, certain fish. Now, I read in verse 6, Now, among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. You notice now that he actually changes their names. They're Hebrew names, and they're given pagan names, heathen names. He gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar. Well, what does that mean? Well, 
means the same thing as Belshazzar, and it meant man a worshiper of Baal, a heathen god. And he named Hananiah Shadrach, and Mishael Meshach, and Azariah Abednego. Now, we're acquainted with those names. And by the way, the names we're acquainted with are heathen names. And I think these four boys registered the highest IQ of any of them. You see, Babylon wanted the best brains in that day, as well as physical, a good physical specimen. Now we are told here that that was given to them, appointed a daily provision of the king. And now let me read verse 6. Now we come to the decision of Daniel as one of the captives to be true to God. Now among these were the children of Judah. We've been over that. Now there were four young men from Judah that are identified to us, and the reason is that they were taking a stand for God. Now, if these other boys were about the age of Daniel, I would say that they probably were around 17 years of age. Now, Dr. Gabeline, who was a very able expositor of the Old Testament, especially the prophetic books, he feels he was about 14. I would suggest that if we come up with the date here or the age of 17, that would be probably the correct answer. And frankly, it was Sir Robert Anderson that gave him the age of about 20, 20, maybe 21 or 22, so that 17 would be a good conservative estimate of the age of these men. Now, will you listen to the stand that Daniel is taking? But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's food, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, this boy, he takes a real stand for God, you see. And the very interesting thing is here is he takes this stand for God in a heathen court. Under normal circumstances, it would have been fatal. Obviously, Daniel was not trying to win a popularity contest. And he wasn't attempting to please Nebuchadnezzar. Now, his decision did not reflect the modern softness of compromise that's all about us today. His decision was not dictated by the false philosophy of the power of positive thinking or how to win friends and influence people. Daniel knew nothing of the opportunist policy when in Babylon do as the Babylonians do. You see, Daniel was not conformed to this world, but he was transformed by the renewing of his mind and the will of God was the all-absorbing purpose of his life. Now, Daniel and his friend represent that Jewish remnant which God has in all ages. And this is the remnant of which Paul spoke in Romans 11, 5, when he said, Even so then at this present time also, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, these boys say that they don't want to eat the king's food. Well, what in the world are they going to eat, you see? That's going to be a pretty big question now. 
And so let's just read on here. And as we do, I think that we'll find out that these young men are going to rebel against the Babylonian diet. You see, they were even to be brainwashed to the extent they're going to be made Babylonians from skin inward and from the skin outward. They were not only to dress like Babylonians, and they were to think like Babylonians. And this man, Daniel, and his friends, the fact of the matter is, God made it very clear to his people in the Old Testament. Now, today we're under the age of grace. We're not under this mosaic system of diet, but Daniel was under it. And in Leviticus 11, 44 to 47, let me read you this. He says, For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves. Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the beasts and of the fowl, and of every living creature that moveth in the waters, and of every creature that creepeth upon the earth, to make a difference between the unclean and the clean, and between the beasts that may be eaten and the beasts that may not be eaten. Now, certain meats were specifically forbidden. And I'm not going back and pick up that list, but you'll find it in Leviticus. And also meats were offered to the heathen idols, which was repulsive to the godly Israelite. And these Hebrew children, Daniel could have been a Nazarite to whom wine was forbidden, because in Numbers 6, 3, the Nazarite, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes or eat moist grapes or dried. And now, They were following, therefore, the injunction that had been given to them. And Isaiah put down in Isaiah 52, 11, Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Now, believers today, we just haven't been given a diet, chart, or a menu. We are told, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 25 through 27, what's sold in the shambles that is out yonder in the meat market. That eat, asking no question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. And then again, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, but meat commandeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. Now, notice that these men are taking a stand under the Mosaic law, which they were under, which means they're taking a stand for God. Verse 9, Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. Now, you see, Daniel is already a favorite, and That's no accident. God was working in his behalf even as he'd worked in the life of Joseph down in the land of Egypt. Verse 10, And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, 
who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. You see, the prince of eunuchs, he didn't want to force the diet on them. But you see, he's on a hot seat. He's caught between a rock and a hard place. What's he going to do? Because he likes Daniel. Now listen to Daniel, verse 11. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, prove thy servants. I beseech thee ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Now, let me give that to you as we have it here in the New Schofield Bible. Test thy servants. This is verse 12 of chapter 1. I beseech thee ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. And believe me, I want to say to you, I recommend this New Schofield Bible. I just wish the things were in the same slot they were in in my old Schofield. It's a little difficult for me to find my way around here. But I don't like several of the translations vegetables. I don't think that that is exactly it. Actually, it was a grain that they were to eat. And actually, the grain was the same thing that we have today in rolled oats, or we have it today in post-toasties, grape nuts. Well, to tell the truth, what Daniel is really saying, he says, let us have our Wheaties, and in a few days we'll show you that we're all right that we are in just as good physical condition as the others are. I think that's much better translation. He's not asking to be made a vegetarian. He wants his wheat, his friends. And I think that's a much better translation. But that's mine. You don't have to accept it, of course. Well, may I say, say that as we come down here now, verse 13, "...then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the youths that eat of the portion of the king's food, and as thou seest, deal with thy servant. In other words, test us out and put us on this diet a few days and see if we are not just about as good physical condition as the other fellows are. Well, the very interesting thing is that God brought favor to Daniel from this Melzar, the chief of the eunuchs, had charge of them. And so the test is going to be made. Now, he purposed in his heart, we're told. And I'd like to say this, because today there are so many that have made Bible separation and Bible living a matter of a few little rules that have to do with eating and have to do with conduct. And there's always a tendency to draw a line down on certain questionable things and be dogmatic about things actually that are debatable. I have a letter in my little book, One Hour in Romans, a woman that was saved in my Thursday night Bible study in downtown Los Angeles. She's in who's who, a rather remarkable woman who'd been in several cults. And then she got with a little group after she was saved that told her that she couldn't do this and she couldn't do that. And her letter to me, as she had been in the East and returned to California, 
She told me how miserable she was. She says, I've done all these things, and yet I'm miserable. May I say to you that actually there was certain things in the past that set up a little system of not doing certain things, doing things that was good at first. For instance, the monasteries that began in the Roman Empire, it was actually a protest against the licentiousness of the Roman Empire. But before long, it was worse on the inside of the monastery than on the outside. And Christ, you remember, said to the Pharisees, you make the outside of the cup clean, but inside it's dirty. It's just like, as he said, whitewashing a tomb. And today it's not by works of righteousness, which we've done. It's according to his mercy. In other words, we must first receive new life from God. We must be born from above. And now if you're going to argue about Daniel's diet, I want to say to you that it all began in the heart of Daniel. Daniel purposed in his heart. He's not a paper mache. He has a heart, and it's in his heart. And Daniel, I think his experience actually should be ours. We are today captives in this world in which we live. You can't get away from this earth. Gravitation holds all of us by the seat of our pants. We just can't jump off. And we're in the world, the Lord Jesus said, but you're not of the world. And we're told you cannot serve God and mammon. And that's not by rules. The fact of the matter is that you've got a purpose in your heart. You've got to have a heart. The Lord Jesus said it's out of the heart proceed issues of life. It's not what goes into you. Those are not the important things. But this man Daniel now is purposed in his heart. And he's going to follow God's law as given to God's people Israel. And this to him was his testimony. Now we are told here that the chief of the eunuchs, the prince of the eunuchs, he was rather reluctant because he was brought up on the Babylonian culture that this dot was the thing that produced geniuses and giants. Well, he soon found out that wasn't altogether true, but he liked Daniel, and they had ten days in which they tested it out. And we're told that Daniel was given pulse. Well, that's not a good translation. And actually, it was a grain, a cereal. And as we said, Daniel wanted to eat his Wheaties. And therefore, he's given that, and the test was made. Verse 14 now, I'm reading. So he consented to them in this matter and tested them ten days. At the end of ten days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the youths who did eat the portion of the king's food, so that actually the diet worked in their behalf. And that ought to tell us something, too, by the way, friends. May I say to you, if you think God gave that diet to his people just to be different, and they were to be different, but also there was a health factor involved. I believe thoroughly today that if that diet given in Leviticus, if you would follow it, you'd be healthier than your neighbor that eats anything. But you can eat anything. We're not under that law today. 
Now we are told here, verse 16, thus Melzer took away the portion of their food and the wine that they should drink and gave them vegetables. No, gave them Wheaties, gave them the cereal. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. Now, just as God had blessed Solomon, God's blessing these Hebrew children in a foreign court. In other words, Daniel will eventually become prime minister through two great world empires. Now, will you notice? And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, we're still in the area of revelation. And long as you're in that area, God will use dreams and visions. But now, don't you today say God has spoken to you in a dream, because I'll have to contradict you. I'm sorry, but I do. This a dear lady rushed up to me, and she said, Oh, Dr. McGee, I've had the most marvelous dream. And she went on to say, and I had to stop her. I said, lady, I think if you just look at what you had for dinner that night, you probably will find the explanation for your dream. I don't think God's speaking that way today. He speaks in his word today. And it's lots easier to dream about it. A great many people, that's easier than studying the word of God. I used to have students. They would pray the night before exam. They were very pious. They didn't study very much, but they were very pious. And they'd stick their Bible under the pillow. One of them told me that's what he did. And I said, look, what do you think? You think that the names of the kings of Israel and Judah are going to come up through the duck feathers and get in your brain? I said, the Holy Spirit, I don't think is helping any lazy person today. And he's no crutch for a lazy person. You're going to have to study the Word of God, and God's speaking that. Now, these men here have the Word of God. We're going to find that Daniel had the book of Jeremiah, because he refers to it later on. But God is speaking now for this man, is writing one of the books of the Bible, in spite of what the critics say. Daniel wrote it, and not three or four hundred years later. Now, will you notice verse 18 of chapter 1 of Daniel? Now, at the end of days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is going to look at the training that has been given to them. Will it be the proper training? I honestly believe that the communists have been very stupid in their brainwashing today. They attempt to break down a man, and you can break him down, break down any human being, of course. And he finally will have to give in. We can only take so much. And they attempt to break them down that way. But friends, that's not the way you do it. You see, this man Nebuchadnezzar knew how to do it. He has given them a lot of good food and gave them a fine position. And now he tests them. And he does it in a friendly way. That's the way you make friends influence people. And that was his philosophy, by the way. Now he brings these men in. And the king, verse 19, conversed with them. And among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. Why, he said, look at these four boys. They're geniuses. And so he gives them a good position. 
Now, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding, that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. Now, Daniel's moved to the head of the class. Verse 21, And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. Now, Daniel's span of life given to us here begins when he was about 17 and continues to when he was about 90 years of age, so that he bridged the 70 years captivity, although he did not return. Apparently before they even left, why Daniel died. We have no record of that at all, of course. Now, we come to the second chapter, and we found out that in chapter 1, heathen customs were judged. Now, we're going to find out in chapter 2 that heathen philosophy is judged. And we have in this chapter the dream of Nebuchadnezzar about a multimetallic image and the interpretation of Daniel concerning the four kingdoms of the times of the Gentiles. Now we're coming to probably one of the great sections of the Word of God. Now, as far as prophecy is concerned, this multimetallic image, together with the four beasts in the seventh chapter and the 70 weeks of Daniel, you have that actually what would be called the backbone of prophecy and the ribs of prophecy, so that you could never have a skeleton of prophecy unless you had these two passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. And everything the Lord Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse was based actually upon the book of Daniel. When they wanted a sign of the end of the age, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, you know you come to that period. And he made it very clear that when Jerusalem would be compassed by armies, that would be a period that would indicate the times of the Gentiles, and it would continue until the times of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. So it makes this chapter now that we're coming to a very important chapter. Now we have here the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and his demands upon the wise men of Babylon. Now that's in the first nine verses. Then you have the decree of Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the wise men for failure to tell the dream. That's verses 10 through 13. And then you have the desire of Daniel to be granted time to tell the dream, verses 14 and 18. Then you have the dream of Nebuchadnezzar described in detail by Daniel. And that's verses 19 through 35. And then you have the definition of four world empires and their destiny as interpreted by Daniel, verses 36 through 43. And then you have the destruction of Gentile world powers and the full establishment of the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. Verses 44, 49. I just talked to a man. He said to me, what is this world coming to? How are things going to be worked out today? There's a crisis everywhere. Well, my friend, the times of the Gentiles are going to run out. 
Gentiles haven't done a very good job of running the world. And we see the beginning of it here, and we may see the end of it. That is, I think the church is going to leave before the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. When that does, that's going to bring Christ back to the earth to rule. Now, you see, this prophecy now is basic, actually, to the understanding of prophecy. That's the reason that I keep insisting, friends, to just know a few little verses of Scripture and to be able to interpret those few little verses of Scripture actually can be a dangerous thing. That actually is the way the cults began. I could name them, but I'd better not. But I'm sure you know that some of them, they only use certain verses of Scripture. In fact, a knowledge of history and of human nature teaches these men that start cults and ism the need for a doctrine which would satisfy the natural mind. And actually, that's what the social gospel is. Liberalism today is something that appeals to the natural mind. A preacher again, young preacher back east, told me about how another minister in a neighboring town is building a great empire. And this man drinks, and he cusses, and he's out with the boys. Probably does everything else the boys do. But he says, how is it that that man's growing people are joining his church? They come to hear him, and I'm attempting to preach the Word of God. And I had to tell him, I said, you and I have got to recognize we're with the minority today. And if we're going to represent God, we're going to be with the minority. And that man's appealing to the natural mind. When you say that he baptized so many, he just got a whole lot of water on them, got them in under the water. But he didn't get them saved because he's not saved himself. Actually, in the past, when the great St. Augustine was asked why he had succumbed to the Manichaean heresy of that day. He gave this answer. And St. Augustine was a great man of God, by the way. He says, it was so complete and reasonable. You see, the philosophical approach that so many preachers are using today is probably the most dangerous approach that is imaginable to the Word of God. They never think about going to the Word of God, making it the foundation and the authority. They've got to give you the interpretation of some man of the past. They want to begin with Plato. I went through that, and when I was about ready to start in the ministry, I wanted to go in that direction because it sure appeals to people, and it shows them how smart you are. But Thank God I got under the assistance and the influence of a man who was a Bible preacher and teacher. In fact, two men. And that put me on the track of just teaching the Bible. Let the chips fall where they may. Now, I'll give you that background because it's important today to study the entire Word of God. And this section we're coming to is important. Now, let me read chapter 2, verse 1. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep went from him. Now, this man Nebuchadnezzar, I'm confident, 
as he had been lifted and exalted to a very high position, that he had wondered about this great empire that had come now into existence under his leadership. Actually, it was the first great world empire. You see, Nebuchadnezzar actually had done something that the Egyptians had not been able to do. After all, Egypt was self-contained, and the biggest mistake any pharaoh ever meant was to leave the Nile River. He just stayed there. He's absolutely well protected. He had a wall around him that nobody could breach, and that was the desert. And only one entrance, and that was to come in through the river. And all he had to do was just guard that. But they began to reach out. But they never did become what you'd call a world empire, although they influenced the world as probably no group of people have ever influenced the world. And this man, Nebuchadnezzar, was just a petty chieftain, and he began to unite these different tribes. And he took over the Assyrian Empire, then the Syrian, and he's on the march. And he goes down and overcomes the Egyptians. And the Greeks are not able to offer any resistance, although he made no effort to move in that direction, didn't need to at that time, because he's actually ruling the then-known world. And this man, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sure... He had to think this thing over. And when he did, he found out that he had a world empire on his hand. That's sort of like the old bromide of getting a lion with a tail. You can't hold on. You can't turn loose. And so he's in that position. Now, this man was troubled in his sleep. And he wondered, of course, about the future of that great empire that he had founded. Where was it all going to end? And do you know that after about 2,500 to 3,000 years of human history since then, we're still wondering about it. And a great many people are wondering. Well, this is the answer. Now, we're told in verse 2, Then the king commanded to summon the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans, to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. He called in all of these wise men. Now, these wise men were the men that had been trained, as we have seen, as Daniel and his friends were being trained. They're still young, you see. But the old boys are called in for this conference, now, the king says to them, and he summons his cabinet. These men constitute that, and they are made up of men of great intellect and learning. They help to many superstitious and false concepts of a heathen religion. It's true they did. But, my friend, I don't know how far we've come today. I know some PhDs who reject the Bible. <laughs> I think they're heathen. <laughs> and a little superstitious. And isn't it interesting? They rule the Bible out of our schools, and then today they're teaching all kinds of astrology and all kinds of superstition, that which has been rejected in the past by civilized people. Strange, isn't it? May I say that 
Don't look down on these brethren because they're about as smart as your PhDs today or your THDs. Now, these men, they comprise the brain trust of Babylon. And they're brought in before the king to hear his unique command. Now, notice, the king said unto them, I've dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Now, he explains to them he's had an unusual dream which he believes to have some far-reaching significance. You see, God made it clear to him that he had something to say, but this man in his darkness, all he knew was this was important. Now, to make sure that these wise men have the correct interpretation, he does not tell the dream. They're going to have to supply the facts of the dream before he'll listen to their interpretation. Now, therefore, These men saved. Here in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Daniel, Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. That to me was about the silliest thing they could ever say in the past. And that was the way that they flattered the king. O king, live forever. I'm sure many a king that was sitting now on the throne had a heart condition, and he'd say, Well, boys, you are wrong. I'm not going to live forever. I'm going to have a heart attack one of these days, and I won't be around. But they seem never to go into that angle of it at all. But here we've come to something that's important. At this juncture in the book of Daniel, there is a change from the Hebrew to the Aramaic language, or the Syriac as it's called here. Now, may I say this to you from here, from the fourth verse of chapter 2 through the seventh chapter, that is through the 28th verse of the seventh chapter, this particular section is in Aramaic or Syriac. And this is important to note because that language was the court language, the diplomatic language of the day. That was the language of the Gentiles. That was the language of the world. That would correspond to what French was a few years ago. And today, I think the English language has supplanted it. Now, from here on, it will be that through the seventh chapter, so that what we have before us here, friends, is something quite remarkable. God is now speaking to the world, not just to his nation. They've gone into captivity, and they're in Babylonian captivity. They're out there by the canals. God has taken the scepter out of the line of David, and he's now put that scepter, if you please, he's put it in Gentile hands, and it's going to stay there until one of these days he's going to take that scepter back. And when he takes that scepter back, nail-pierced hands will take the scepter, because it's his intention that Jesus is going to reign. Actually, we're talking now about a worldwide kingdom. This idea that the Word of God is confined just to some local deity and that the Bible has quite a limited view, I think is entirely wrong, because if you examine it carefully, you'll find out that God had in mind a worldwide kingdom. He says, verse 27 
of Psalm 89 of the covenant God had made with David. And I'm reading now Psalm 89, verse 27. Also, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. King of kings and Lord of lords. And then down in verse 34 of Psalm 89, he says, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that's gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness, I'll not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. God says, if you can go out and the sun has disappeared from the heavens and the moon is not out at night, then he says, you'll know that I have changed my mind. But as long as you see those, you'll know I'm going to put my king over this earth. Now, we're talking about that which is global now and not some local situation. This is the first great world ruler and now the language here is the language of the world of that day. Now, the king says here in verse 5, "...the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If ye will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill." Now, that's rather extreme judgment, I would say. But you can see what the king is getting at. And very frankly, a faulty translation of this verse has given the impression that the king had forgotten his dream. The fact of the matter is, he hadn't forgotten his dream. The opposite is true. He knows the dream, he feels its importance, and he refuses to divulge it to the wise men. Why? He wants to get a good interpretation of it. And when he says here, the word is gone from me, that is the American Standard Version of it, of 19.1. It's a good translation. Now, that suggests you see something else. In other words, he's saying to these men, I haven't changed my mind. And this judgment I'm pronouncing, don't beg me to tell you the dream. I'm not going to tell you the dream you're coming up with it if I listen to your answer. Now, the Berkeley version has this, I think, rather helpful translation at this point. The king answered the Chaldeans, This word I speak, I mean it. If you do not tell me the dream and what it means, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be destroyed. That's really toning it down, I'll say that. But nevertheless, the penalty is still excessive and extreme. In other words, he's putting a fear of the Lord in these men. They've got to come up now with the interpretation of the dream. But first of all, they have to give what the dream is. Now, in verse 6, he says, "...but if ye show the dream and the interpretation thereof, Ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. Conversely, he could be generous and charitable. This man was greatly governed by his emotions, as we're going to see. He said, I'm going to amply reward you if you give me the correct interpretation. Now, they answered and said, 
Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. Now, the wise men, they realize their dangerous predicament, and they again cautiously suggest to the king that he supply the dream, and they'll supply the interpretation. And I guarantee you they'll come up with an interpretation, but they can't come up with the dream. Verse 8, the king answered and said, I know of a certainty that ye would gain the time because ye see the things gone from you. You see, I mean business. Now you're stalling. You want a little bit more time. And again, the Berkeley version clarifies this verse. The king replied, I see plainly that you're trying to gain time because you see how capital punishment awaits you. That's taking a little liberty, but that actually is the meaning, friends. Now, verse 9, "...but if ye will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you, for ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me. Till the time be changed, therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof." Now, you see the king really reveals his lack of confidence in the wise men of Babylon. I think they'd failed him probably on previous assignments, just as the prophets of Baal failed old Ahab. But since he was killed in the battle, he couldn't retaliate. But Nebuchadnezzar feels that these men have been feeding him a great deal of malarkey, by the way. And he's now putting them to a real test. And so Nebuchadnezzar's reasoning at this point, I think, seems very logical. If they can give him his dream, then it's reasonable to conclude that their interpretation is genuine. And if not, any interpretation would be under suspicion, of course, even the right one. Now, this decree of Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the wise men for failure to tell the dream. And so, will you notice verse 10? The... Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There's not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. And that's the first true statement they've made. No man on earth could give it. Only God could. Therefore, there's no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things at any magician, astrologer, Chaldean. Now, in desperation, these wise men are pleading really for their lives by trying to show the unreasonableness of his demands. And if you leave out the supernatural, of course, his demands unreasonable. But they've made claim to be superior, and he's asking them now to demonstrate that. Verse 11, chapter 2, "...and it's a rare thing that the king requireth, and there's none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh." In other words, what they're saying is, we have no communication with heaven. They even confess that their gods were not giving them very much information. They conclude the argument by stating that no human being could meet the king's demands. And this, of course, is going to pave the way for Daniel. Now, verse 12, "...for this cause the king was angry, very furious, and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon." Now, the king exhibits here a violent temper for which he was noted. And it's another symptom of the psychosis that he's suffering with. We'll see it later on. 
And the king orders now the wise men destroyed summarily. Verse 13, And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Now, this is going to include Daniel and his brethren. They are just being brought up, but they're being taught by this same crowd, and the king now has lost confidence. You see, the rash order to destroy the wise men of Babylon is going to take in a great many men that were really innocent. They could not be held responsible. You see, the dictatorship of this man could be carried to the nth degree. He could do what he wanted to do. And this decree reached out to include all the wise men, even those in training, who had no opportunity to tell the king his dream. Now, I want you to note here in verse 14 to 18, the desire of Daniel to be granted time to tell the dream. Now, listen to this. This is a remarkable section. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. You see, Daniel is really puzzled at the hasty and unjust decree of the king. But he uses tact now, and he approaches Arioch, who's the captain of the king's guard, which means he was in the secret service. He had charge of it, naturally got in the presence of the king. And it would be interesting to know all that I think Arioch communicated to Daniel. I wonder if he suggested that the king was off his rocker. It's not recorded if he did, or the king didn't have all of his marbles. I think maybe touched his head. He says, you know how the king is. Well, now let me read verse 16 now of chapter 2 of Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he'd give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. And Daniel got an audience with the king. You see, he's already in favor, and he requested to be given time to tell the dream. And actually, it seems presumptuous. In fact, an act on the part of a very brash young man However, succeeding events, I think, will reveal that it was the confidence of a man with faith in God. Now, will you notice, verse 17 and 18, "...then Daniel went to his house. He made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest." of the wise men of Babylon. Now, do you notice something here that's quite interesting? We called attention to it before, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven. Now, that is something that you only find in these books like Nehemiah and Ezra and now Daniel. We said at the time it would be in Daniel. You see, after the departure of the glory, of God from Jerusalem in the temple and the Holy of Holies. And all of that was destroyed. He's now addressed as the God of heaven. You see, these men had no limited notion of God, that he had a little temple in Jerusalem and that he could dwell there. He's the God of heaven. And now he says, desire mercies. And that reveals the basis of their prayers. 
God does not answer prayer because of the worth or the effort or the character or the works of anyone praying. All prayer must rest upon his mercy. To pray in Jesus' name simply means that we come to God not on our merit, but on his merit, and we look to him for mercy. That's the picture here. Now, we're told here, verse 19, and beginning with this section, we have here the large section of this chapter. The dream of Nebuchadnezzar described in detail by Daniel as a multi-metallic image. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. I would think that the way God revealed it to him was God gave to Daniel the same dream that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar. And that would be the way God communicated to this man Daniel. This seems to be the reasonable explanation. Now, in verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and might are his, and he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise, and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, and hast made known unto me now what we desired of thee, for thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. Now, this is one of the several recorded prayers of Daniel. You remember I said, among other things, Daniel was a man of purpose, Daniel was a man of prayer, Daniel was a man of prophecy. And I'm not sure but what prayer might be one of the most important ones. But here we see this tremendous prayer. God alone has revealed this secret now to Daniel, and here's his prayer of thanksgiving. Now he's ready to go in and ask for an audience of the king. Now, Daniel does something very practical. Verse 24, and I'm reading now from the second chapter of Daniel. Therefore Daniel went unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Now, Daniel wants to stop this bloody slaughter that would have taken place. And apparently, Arioch had no stomach or heart for the matter either. He didn't want to slay all the wise men. And then Arioch, verse 25, and I'm reading, "...then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus unto him, I found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. Now, this man rushes into the king, and he rushes Daniel into the presence of the king with the good news that the dream will be divulged. And verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Now, quite obviously, and I think logically, the king was rather skeptical. All of these wise men 
had not been able to come up with the interpretation. And here comes in this little fellow Daniel. There's the king on the throne, and you can see the look on his face that he certainly is very skeptical. And Daniel, just this little fellow standing before the king, and the king is asking him, you mean to tell me that all the other wise men, they couldn't answer? They had no answer? Now, you feel like you could answer. Maybe this is just another attempt of the wise men to stall for time. And I think his question sounds rather cynical. He said, here, are you able to make known unto me the dream which I've seen and the interpretation thereof? And I want you to notice the answer of Daniel. It's a marvelous answer. I'm reading now verses 27 and 28. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, That which the king hath demanded, cannot the wise men, the astrologers and magicians, the soothsayers, show unto the king? But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these." Now, Daniel immediately, if you'll notice, he makes a difference and a distinction between the wisdom of Babylon and the wisdom of God. You remember Paul says the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, by the way. Paul said that to the Corinthians. You read 1 Corinthians first chapter verses 18 through 25. Now, Daniel has the unique privilege of introducing to the darkened mind of this pagan king, the living and true God. He says, the God of heaven. He reveals secrets, and the emphasis in the dream is upon the latter days. Do you notice? And maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days? That's pretty important, because that's going to be the emphasis now of the dream. It refers to the end of the times of the Gentiles, which, by the way, runs concurrently with the latter days of the nation Israel. And both come to their fulfillment during the great tribulation period. The day in which we live is man's day. You see, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, But with me, he says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you are of man's judgment. That is, of man's judgment day. Yea, I judge not mine own self. We're living in the day of man, you see. And it's well to note that the term, the times of the Gentiles, is not synonymous with the term, the fullness of the Gentiles. Paul says in Romans eleven twenty five, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, here is a distinction that is a difference. The fullness of the Gentiles ends with the rapture of the church. The term the latter days and the times of the Gentiles are not synonymous with the last days 
of the church, which comes to a fulfillment at the rapture and precede the great tribulation period. Because you see, the fullness of the times of the Gentiles go right on through the great tribulation period. But God, at that time now, has turned back to the nation Israel. Now will you notice verses 29 and 30. And Daniel now is going to make known to the king the dream. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? This thing bothered Nebuchadnezzar, lying in bed at night. He wondered what the future held. Here he's a world ruler, and he started out as a petty king. And he says now, and I'm reading again, "...and he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart." You see, the dream now had to do with the future of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and the outcome of the great world empires. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar had been troubled about the future of this vast empire of which he had very suddenly found himself the possessor and the dictator. And the dream was God's answer to his problem. Now, Daniel makes it clear that he himself deserves no credit, but that God in heaven has revealed the dream. God was prompted, you see, to reveal the dream to spare the lives of the wise men, as well as to satisfy the curiosity of this man, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, God is going to speak to this man in the language that he will understand. This is a man that actually it was the outward splendor. It was the outward glory of his kingdom. And God's going to speak to him in showing the outward splendor and glory. But also it's the dream of a Gentile And God is speaking to him in a way that he'd understand the image was not to be worshipped here, you see. But this man knew all about images, because he fell down before them there in the city of Babylon. It was a city filled with images. Now, God speaks to him in the language that he can understand. And he's going to give now in this section the history of the rule of this world by the Gentiles. Because of the failure of the house of David, God now is taking the scepter of this universe out from the hands of the Lion of David, and he's going to put it in the hands of the Gentiles. And it's there today. It'll be there until the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ when he comes to this earth. And he'll take that scepter and rule on this earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, we have that period bridge between that day of Nebuchadnezzar and right down to where we live and on beyond where we live to the end of the times of the Gentiles. Now, let me read here in your hearing. He says to this man, "'As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed.'" 
Now, let's drop down to verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. That is, it excited terror. It was awe-inspiring. I would say that it had glamour, if you please. It reveals that which was very glamorous. It was terrific, was stupendous. Those adjectives we use a great deal today. Now, Daniel begins to describe the dream Nebuchadnezzar had had. I wish that I could have been there and have seen the expression on Nebuchadnezzar's face change from cynicism to unconcealed amazement. And when he began to say, you saw a great image, the brightness of it was terrific, was stupendous. I think that the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar lighted up. He shifted to the edge of his throne and he said, boy, that's it. You are starting right. And so he begins to move. And now in this land of idolatry, such a vision was the only language that Nebuchadnezzar could truly understand because this place of Babylon was known as the fountainhead of pagan religion and it was the womb of heathen idols. Now, verse 32 and 33 in the second chapter of Daniel, and I'm reading this. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, and his feet part of iron and part of clay. And I think that when Daniel said that, again, this king says, Boy, you are right. Now he's prepared to listen to the interpretation. Now let's say a word about this. First of all, I'd like to give you a quotation from Tregellis relative to this. He says concerning this image, and I'm quoting now, "...here all is presented as set before the king according to his ability of apprehension, the external and visible things being shown as man might regard them. As we have said, God's speaking to him in the language that he can understand. Now, this tremendous image that's before him, it just stands there. No movement at all. It's just awe-inspiring. It's glamorous. It's terrific. It's stupendous. Oh, by the way, I said that before, didn't I? But may I say that's what it was. Now, the head was of gold the breast and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of brass, and the legs are iron, and the feet were of iron and clay mixed together. Now, the image, therefore, consisted of a very strange assortment of metals. It was not an alloy of metals, but was multi-metallic image of four metals plus a silicon, that is sand, that is clay. And it's easily described as we've said here. Now, let's take another look here, and I'm going to move on down and read a little bit more, because we're going to be talking about this image now. It's very important. It's one of the very important 
parts of prophecy. I'm reading now verses 34 and 35. Thou sawest, held out a stone, was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and it came like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, we'll get to the interpretation later on. And we're going to let Daniel give the interpretation, because we don't need to guess at it at all. But the thing to note here is, as Nebuchadnezzar in his dream beheld the image in awe and wonder, a stone coming from beyond the environs of the image and without human origin or motivation, smote the image on the feet of iron and clay with such force that all the metals were pulverized. And the wind blew the dust of the image away so that it entirely disappeared. And the stone, however, began to grow as a living stone and it filled the whole world and took the place of this image. That's very important now to see. And we'll get to the interpretation that's given to us. Now we have the definition of four world empires and their destiny as interpreted by Daniel. So let's continue to read verses 36 through 38. I'm reading. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory, and wheresoever the children of man dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Now, this is the first great world ruler, and I take it that this was God's ideal for Adam. Adam was given dominion. He lost it. And there has come now four great world rulers, or four great nations, and they've attempted to rule the world, and they've all just butchered the job. None of them have made a real success of it. But the first one did the best job, and the second, and so on. And we are down today where the iron and the clay is. And we right now seem to be in the number one slot. And very frankly, we're not doing a very good job, are we? I think any honest person has to say, well, we're not making a success of it. Now, Daniel begins, you see, immediately to interpret the dream here. The different metals represent world empires. Nebuchadnezzar is identified as the head of gold. He exercised rulership over the then-known world, and no one questioned his authority. His was an absolute monarchy, and there's been very few since then, by the way. And we find in the fifth chapter of Daniel, verse 18 and 19, and in other sections of the Bible, we find a great deal is said about this Babylonian empire. Jeremiah, in the 27th chapter, beginning at verse 5. Just let me lift out a few things 
God says here, I've made the earth. And I'm reading now Jeremiah 27, beginning at verse 5. I have made the earth, the man and the beasts that are upon the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm. And I've given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him and his sons and his sons' sons. Now, God says, then I'm going to come and punish that kingdom and that land. That's interesting. And then we're coming to it again in the fifth chapter of Daniel, and I'm going to reserve till we get there to look at that passage. Now, God made him the one at the top. He's king of kings. He's the first great world ruler. Been none like him since then. Verse 39, And after thee, he says, shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Now, this kingdom that will come after him will be inferior. The third one will be inferior to the second. The fourth will be inferior to the third, which means the fourth one is the worst form of all. And that's where we are today. Now, two kingdoms are mentioned here. The arms of silver represent Media Persia. And we are told that there's something would happen to the kingdom. In Daniel 5:28, the kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So we don't speculate about that. And again in Daniel 6:8, now O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Now the third kingdom, represented by brass, is the Greco-Macedonian Empire. And then we'll have something more to say about that later. Now we come in verse 40 to the fourth kingdom. And I want to reiterate again, there does not happen to be a fifth kingdom, just four. That's important to keep in mind. Verse 40, And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces, and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. Now, verse 41, And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of man, but they shall not adhere one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Now, that's a remarkable passage of Scripture. First of all, let me say that more attention is directed to this fourth kingdom than the other three kingdoms put together. Four verses are used here to describe it and to interpret it by Daniel, whereas two of the kingdoms, the Media Persian and the 
Greco-Macedonian, only one verse describes it. That's verse 39. And the fourth kingdom is the kingdom of the latter days. And you remember, that is exactly what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that the image was all about. He says, the God in heaven, the living God that you know nothing about. This man, Nebuchadnezzar, worshipped that which he could see, idols. Babylon has been called the fountainhead of idolatry. And God is speaking to him through an image, but it's an image not to be worshipped, by the way. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. In other words, that was the thinking of this man Nebuchadnezzar. Here he is, a world ruler. Where's this thing going to end? And friends, we're still living in this period, I think, of the latter days. And that's still a vital question today. How in the world is this thing going to end? I have a message on this subject. What's this world coming to? And that is a message that you could write in and ask for. That is, if you want to have part in this radio ministry, that's the only way I can send out books, by the way. So that here we have, what is this world coming to? It's a very pertinent question in this day in which we're living. There's something else that I'd like to call attention to now. I want us to stand off and look at this image. It's awe-inspiring, tremendous size. I think it towered over the entire plain of Babylon, as Nebuchadnezzar saw it in his vision. And it's a multi-metallic image. It has a head of gold. That speaks of Babylon. This man Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Thou art the head of gold. And the breast and arms are silver, media Persian. Brass is the Graco-Macedonians. That is the sides of it. And then the legs are of iron, and that's Rome. Now there is inserted clay into the iron, and that's the last form of the Roman Empire, by the way. Now, all you have here are four empires. Now, there are several observations that I want to make about this image. There is, first of all, definite deterioration from one kingdom to another. And it's made very clear in, I think, here's several very specific ways. And I must add this, that this is contrary to modern philosophy, to modern opinion, there is a viewpoint today that we're all getting better and better every day, and that evolution is working, and my, it's onward and upward forever, and that our form of government is the best form of government, which it's not, and that actually today we're a superior people, and we are not. But that's the way we're being taught today. You know, the human race has always loved to pat itself on the back and say, like little Tommy Tucker, it was little Tommy Tucker, or some little fella, he sat in the corner, and he reached into the pie he was eating, and he stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum, and he said, what a smart boy am I. There's a lot of folk running around like little Tommy Tucker, and I'm not sure it was little Tommy Tucker that did that, but it's one of the little fellas that was in Mother Goose, May I say to you that you have here deterioration, one kingdom after another, and each one is inferior to the one before it. Now, that is revealed, first of all, in the quality of the metals. 
Gold is finer than silver, and silver is finer than brass. And actually, brass is finer than iron, and iron is better than clay, although it's mixed with it, so that there's definite deterioration. Then here is something that Tregelius called attention to years ago. He was a great scholar, and that is the specific gravity of the metals. Those of you who've studied chemistry now know about this, that each metal shows deterioration. Tregelis is the one calls attention to that of the specific gravity of the metals. And then the third thing that reveals deterioration is the position of each metal. The head has more honor than the feet have. I'm sure that we'd all agree to that. Then the fourth is the very specific statement of Scripture here. For instance, we had told to us here in verse 39, "...and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom, and that is to be inferior again." So that the statement of Scripture, it's very clearly stated here, that each kingdom is inferior to the one before it. Now, the fifth thing that I would have you observe is the division of sovereignty. And that's important to see. There is a definite division of sovereignty that denotes weakness. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, but there are two arms of the media persian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire was stronger because there was not that division, that bifurcation in the empire. And the Greco-Macedonian empire begins with one, but it's soon divided into four. And Rome has two legs of iron, but it eventuates into ten toes that are composed of both iron and clay. So that there is here a division of sovereignty. And I heard one of these movie stars in one of these interview programs, talk program, and I'm convinced that they talk too much, but maybe all of us do for that matter. But this party made the statement. She says, I believe in democracy. Well, I don't, friends. I believe in our form of government. And our form of government is actually not a democracy. It is a representative form of government. They don't ask me to come up to Washington to make any decision. There are a lot of people that have been going to Washington telling them how to do, and I think somebody needs to tell them. But the folk that are telling them are the wrong people. That doesn't mean I'm the one to go up there because I think I would make as big a fool of myself as some of them have made of themselves. And it's quite interesting, these bleeding hearts... They were running around, you remember, talking about we should stop the bombing and that we should bring our boys home. And I never heard one of those fellows have anything to say concerning those bleeding hearts. They actually said they were hurting them. Several statements have been made that those people actually were on the side of the enemy. So that, very frankly, I'm of the opinion that a democracy is not really the best form of government. And you know what God's form of government's going to be? Just exactly like that of the head of gold. Only this time it's that rock that's cut out without hands. 
And that one is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to reign over this earth, and he's not going to ask anybody's advice about how to do it. He'll not have a congress, and he'll not have a cabinet, and he'll not be calling upon you to vote for him. If you don't make a decision for him, my friend, you just won't be there, that's all. And now don't rebel against that, because this happens to be his world. He created it. What did you and I ever do? We're just, you know, little pygmies running around down here. And God has as much right to remove you or me from this little world as I have to remove those ants that get into my house and to get into my yard. I put out poison for those fellows. I want to get rid of them. Why? Because they don't fit into my program. Well, I want to tell you that a lot of us are not fitting into God's program. This is his world. He's going to make it to suit himself. And my friend, I don't care what you think or what I think. It's going to be what he thinks. And that's the thing that's important. And his form of government is going to be, I think, one of the most strict form of governments the world has ever seen. I don't think a rooster's going to crow in that day. Doesn't get his permission. <laughs> you talk about a dictator. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be a dictator. And my friend, if you're not willing to bow to him, I don't think you'd even want to be in his kingdom when he establishes it here upon this earth. And maybe it's a good thing he's got another place for the folk like that, because it wouldn't be nice for them to be here. And I don't think they'd enjoy it at all. God's form of government is absolute ruler of a king. May I say to you, the sovereignty of one ruler, and it's going to be dictatorial, and his will is going to prevail. That's the reason that it's well to practice up today, bowing to him, friends, and acknowledging him, because of the fact he's going to take over one of these days. Now, will you notice something else? That from the head of gold to the ten toes of iron and the silicon, there is marked deterioration. Now, I'm coming back to all of this in chapter 7, and I'm not given specifics concerning each one of these kingdoms. But when we get to chapter 7, I will be dealing with specifics. And at that time, we're going into a great deal of detail because there the four wild beasts that Daniel saw in his dream cover the same period, the same kingdoms, and a great deal more was given to Daniel than was given to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there is something else I'd call your attention to here before we move on. No great world power follows Rome. The Roman Empire is the last, and it will be in existence in the latter days. Actually, it exists today. You see, all of these other empires were destroyed by an enemy on the outside. But no enemy destroyed Rome. Attila the Hun came in, sacked the city. But he was so awestruck by what he saw, and he realized he couldn't handle it. He took his barbarians and left town, and no enemy destroyed it. The Roman Empire fell apart, and you have actually Rome living in the great nations of Europe today. Italy, I'm sure, is one of them. 
Rome is there, of course. I'm sure France is part of it. Great Britain must be. Germany, Spain, that is the old Roman Empire. It just fell apart. And the laws of Rome live on, actually, the language. Nobody's speaking Latin, but Latin does help you to understand French and Spanish. And I'm told it helps with these other languages, that it's very important. The laws of Rome live on in these different nations. And the spirit, the warlike spirit, for Europe has been at war ever since it broke up into these kingdoms. Now, what's happening today? There is actually a new psychological viewpoint taking place in Europe. They tell me young people today, many of them in France and in Italy, they don't like to be called Italians or French or German. They like to be called Europeans. May I say to you, that's creating a basis because one of these days there's coming along a man, and he's known in Scriptures, the man of sin or the Antichrist, he's going to put that back together again. Now, they're trying to do it today. They have a common market, and I'm sure that they're well along in doing this. But not until God takes down the roadblock will that man appear, because he's Satan's man, and God won't let him appear till he calls out his people to his name. And when he does, he'll remove his church. God's carrying on his program today, friends, whether it looks like it or not. And therefore, we find here there will come one who'll put that Roman Empire back together again. That's the reason I never speak of the resurrection of the Roman Empire. That implies it died. It never did die. I like to go to the nursery and pick up something else. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's men and all the king's horses just can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But you see, it fell apart like Humpty Dumpty. And there have been a lot that have tried to put it back together again. But they haven't succeeded. That was one of the missions of the Roman Catholic Church at the beginning. And you find Charlemagne attempted to put it back together again. And he didn't succeed. And you find Napoleon attempted it. And several emperors of Germany. Hitler attempted. Mussolini attempted it. But so far, the man has not yet appeared. I think de Gaulle actually had that in mind. But he didn't get very far with it. God's not quite ready for that one to appear. Now we come to verse 44 and 45. And you here now see the destruction of Gentile world powers and the full establishment of the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. Now, how is all of this going to end? What will be the end of this last kingdom? The one that's represented by the clay, which I think speaks of the masses, the people, the different nations, and that's in the ten toes. And then the iron, that's Rome that lives on. How is all that going to end? Well, it's going to end just the way that we're told here. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to another, but it shall break in pieces, consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, that's going to be put back together again someday, the fourth kingdom. The Roman Empire didn't die, it just fell apart, and someone will put it back together again. 
be like a jigsaw puzzle that's to be put back together again. And when it comes into power again, it'll be put together by a man known as the man of sin, the Antichrist. He has about 35 aliases in Scripture. We're going to see him here in the book of Daniel. And we see that he's the one that brings it back, and he'll be a world dictator. Thirteenth of Revelation tells us that. Rule the world, just as Nebuchadnezzar did at the beginning. Now, that's an ideal form of government. But if the wrong man is at the top, it's horrible. That was actually true under Nebuchadnezzar, as we're going to see in the next chapter. And it's certainly going to be true of Antichrist when he rules. But when the Lord Jesus comes, he's going to rule as an autocratic ruler. He's going to put down all rebellion against him, and he's going to take over. He shall break them with a rod of iron. He shall dash them in pieces as a potter's vessel. That's very clear. I don't think he wants me to apologize for him today. If you don't like it, may I say to you, I'd suggest that you get on the next trip to the moon or Mars and get off this earth because he's going to take it over, by the way. I think that he may take over the place where you may take off to also, but be that as it may, this is his universe, belongs to him. Now, we're told, and I keep reading here, far as much as thou, I'm reading now, Verse 45 here, "...far as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, the interpretation thereof sure." Now, that stone that's cut out without hands is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a man. This is a stone cut out without hands. This is the one God's anointed, if you please. Now, the Lord Jesus made it clear he's that stone. He said in his day, and there were many that at that time understood what he meant. I think probably more than understand this verse today. And that's Matthew twenty-one forty-four. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it'll grind him to powder. Now, today, he is the stone. He is that living stone. He is that foundation stone. No other foundation can any man lay. If you fall on that stone, that is, by faith, rest in him. May I say to you, that means you come just as you are, without one plea, but that he shed his blood for you and me. That's the way you and I come to him. And it's the only way that we can come to him today. If we fall on this stone, we're broken. We have nothing to offer. We come as sinners. It's a wonderful stone to rest upon. Someone criticized the little Scottish lady because she talked about resting in Christ and she had the assurance of her salvation and somebody says, well, don't you know that the rock is Christ? But how do you know that you can stay on that rock? Oh, she says, I tremble on the rock, but the rock never trembles under me. We can rest in him. That's a safe place to be. 
Now, the stone is actually one of the many figures of speech used to describe Christ in his office as both Savior and Judge. He's the rock of salvation, Deuteronomy 32, 15. He's the rock of judgment, Deuteronomy 32, 43. Now, at this particular time, this speaks of his coming to the earth as judge to put down earth's rebellion against God. And the reference here is to the second coming of Christ to the earth. And that's depicted for us in detail in the 19th of Revelation, verses 11 through 21, when John says he saw a door opened in heaven and a rider on a white horse that came forth. And his coming is climactic, it's catastrophic, and it's cataclysmic. And it's mentioned again and again in Scripture. I quoted from Psalm 2 a moment ago. But there's references in the 14th of Zechariah, 3rd chapter of Joel, the 34th chapter of Isaiah. And these are just some of them. I'm not going to refer to any more of them today. Man's vaunted boast of ruling this earth and establishing a utopia will end in the dismal destruction of his so-called civilization. It's hard for us to get this in our thinking, but you and I live in a world that's judged today. This world's not on trial. I hear people say, oh, I'll take my chance. You don't have a chance. You're lost. You're without God. You have no capacity for God, my unsaved friend. All you have is in your heart maybe a little desire to want to be religious. You'd like to win a few more bars, go into Sunday school, not missing a Sunday. But my friend, you have to trust Christ as Savior. And that's not easy to do, is it? It's not easy to bow to him and acknowledge him. But either you're going to come to that stone or that stone's coming to you. I'd rather go to the stone, by the way. And God's going to end man's little day down here. God's kingdom will prevail. And for 1,000 years, the earth will be tested under the personal reign of Christ. And apart from a brief moment in which Satan and sin will be permitted to make their last assault on the righteous reign of God, the kingdom will continue on into eternity. And you'll find that in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, verses 46 and 47. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, fell upon his face, and he worshiped Daniel. You see, he didn't know any better. And he commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Now, you see the effect upon Nebuchadnezzar was so profound that he actually worships Daniel. And he commands others to do likewise. And he only knows the worship of physical objects. And he tempts us to worship the living and true God. And this was his introduction to the God of heaven. And I want you in this book to watch the growth of the faith in the heart of this idolatrous king. And it'll break through the darkness of paganism. And he's going to come into the marvelous light 
of the knowledge of God. We'll see that in this book. Now I'm reading verses 48 and 49. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Now, that matter of sitting in the gate, we've examined that twice before. Been the book of Genesis, sitting in the gate down in Sodom. It meant he was a judge. And we also have seen in the book of Esther, that was the office that Mordecai was lifted to. He sat in the gate. Then he was a judge. So now Daniel is rewarded and he's elevated. And he doesn't forget his three Hebrew friends. And they likewise receive high positions in the government of Babylon. This young boy now, Daniel, is moved into a position actually of sitting in the gate. means he was a judge. He's made Supreme Court justice. But as we move through the book, he acts in the capacity of a prime minister. He's the one that Nebuchadnezzar refers to, that he looks to. And this man now is to be the one to judge the people. And he's also apparently one that is prime minister going about over the kingdom of Babylon. So, We have here now this man Daniel brought to this high position. 